And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 7 as we continue our study in the gospel of Matthew and in the Sermon on the Mount. Hear the words of your Savior. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would grant us your spirit so that we would humbly receive your word today, that we would rightly apply it, that you would loosen my tongue to speak these things clearly, that you would deliver us from distraction, deliver us from error and everything that is not uh, helpful, remove from us. We pray that the spirit that inspired these words would now guide us into truth. In Jesus' name, amen. What is it like to do something for someone only to discover that the thing you've done, you poured yourself into, is just not appreciated. Say you pour your artistry and your skill and your energy into preparing a delightful meal that ends up getting scraped into the trash. How uh, heartbreaking is that to, to have that loss and that, uh, that waste. You may create a culinary masterpiece. You can create beef wellington and Maryland crab cakes. But if you serve them to a four-year-old who is on a strict dinosaur-shaped chicken nugget diet, uh, they are not going to appreciate it and all of your efforts are going to go to waste. At some point in your life, you've probably shared something you loved, a piece of music a novel, a movie. You've shared it with a friend because it moved you. It stirred your heart. But when you try to bring someone else into the appreciation of this thing, they don't get it. They look at you like you've got two heads. You like this? What is wrong with you? This is awful. And that's very depressing. Maybe you've attempted to teach great works of literature to middle schoolers. And while you are virtually vibrating with enthusiasm over your subject, your students yawn and they uh, stare at the clock and they look at their shoes. And in the back of your mind, you hear the words of Jesus, do not cast your pearls before swine. We've heard these words used this way before to mean something like this. Don't waste your time with barbarians. Don't give your treasures of culture and civilization to savages. Don't waste your breath on the ignorant. You may as well gather up a van load of orangutans and take them to the ballet as to teach these people or to talk to these people. They won't enjoy it and you'll all just be frustrated in the end. But is that all Jesus is getting at here? Is this what he's communicating? Is he, is he just giving us this little nugget of wisdom to save us some exasperation, just to save us some frustration? If so, if that's what Jesus is saying, did he follow his own advice? Because every act of Jesus, everything he said was priceless and was received poorly by someone. It was underappreciated. It was despised. It was rejected. I can't think of a single word or deed of Jesus that was valued the way it should have been valued. Uh, in, In one sense, Jesus spent his entire ministry tossing pearls at pigs, speaking precious words to ignorant people who didn't deserve them. And so if you've ever done that, if you have ever been underappreciated, you are in excellent company. The Lord Jesus knows exactly what that's like. But 
If all that Jesus is teaching here is never give something valuable to someone who doesn't deserve it, who cannot appreciate it, uh, well, then that would have excluded any of us from ever hearing the gospel. None of us deserve the truth. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, every one of us would despise the gospel. I'm thankful that the Lord threw some pearls in the direction of this pig. So, so the, if, if the pigs in the saying must be something more than uh, an unbeliever who needs to hear the gospel because these pigs get violent. They trample. They, uh, they turn and tear you in pieces. There's, there's something more going on here. There must be another layer to this. So these sayings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are kind of like Solomon's Proverbs. We need to hear them. We need to meditate on them, walk around with them in our heads, in our hearts, let them marinate, and then you find yourself in situations where you can make application, where you recall the things you've read and you can apply these words. For example, if you come across an online debate and you're tempted to jump in, then you remember the words of Solomon, he who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. So you remember the words of Solomon, you just keep scrolling. You go on to something else. You don't waste your time. Or you clean up after your children for the umpteenth time today and you're tempted toward bitterness, you're tempted toward anger. But then you remember the words of Solomon, where no oxen are, the trough is clean but increase comes by the strength of an ox. And you give thanks for all of your little messy oxen. And uh, you, you teach them how to pick up after themselves. But that's how these work. You take time and reflect and meditate on these things. And this is another proverb that requires some meditation, some reflection, and also some level of wisdom and skill and maturity and discretion for us to understand and apply faithfully. Because in the mind of an immature, foolish, arrogant, unskilled man who reads, don't cast your pearls before swine, he reads that and he thinks, everything I like is a pearl and everybody around me is a pig. And he starts to think in terms of his own, he just feeds his own bluster and establishes his own arrogance. It makes him more self-confident. A misreading or a misapplication of this would do that. Certainly, that's not the attitude that Jesus is encouraging. Not everything is a pearl. Not everybody's a pig. So Jesus isn't encouraging that. So let's do some work to understand this as best we can and apply it correctly. First, let's remember where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. This proverb of Jesus comes right after the instruction at the beginning of chapter 7 where Jesus is telling us how to exercise proper judgment. I'm going to read that again. It's been a few weeks since we read it. Chapter 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So the topic here, the context, the subject that Jesus is speaking on is proper judgment, right discernment. And when we studied this a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus does not 
forbid all judgment altogether. Non-students of the Bible read the first two verses. In fact, that's probably the only two words of the Bible they know. Judge not. And they think that's all there is to the matter. And furthermore, on top of that, that, that judging means doing or saying anything that makes somebody else feel bad. And so we don't want to do that. Uh, the, the assumption is that what Jesus is saying is we let people do whatever they want. We let people believe whatever they want to believe. Don't ever correct. Don't ever confront. Just let everyone do what seems right to them whatever feels good to them, and don't ever make anybody feel bad by what you say or what you do. But that's not what Jesus is after at all. What he is correcting, and and we miss this if we misread this, what he is correcting is a hypocritical, hypercritical spirit that is eager to point out what is wrong with with everyone else while ignoring our own faults. Jesus corrects our tendency to condemn people, to set ourselves up as judges and authorities, and to make judicial pronouncements. There's a sinful way to go about correcting sin and correcting error. The correct way, the faithful way, is to do what Jesus says, which is to confess your own guilt, be very humble about your own limits and your own faults and your own frailties, And then, after you amend your behavior, you address and deal with the four-by-four fence post that's sticking out of your eye, then, after dealing with your own sin, you can see clearly to deal with the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus does not say, eh, forget about the speck. He doesn't say forget about the fence post that's in your eye either. Jesus does not say, never exercise judgment. He says, you must exercise righteous judgment. And here's how. And now his exhortation toward proper judgment is established in the very next sentence, the very next verse, where he says, you know what? There are some people who are dogs. And there are some people who are pigs. And there is a right way to exercise righteous judgment. And you must exercise discernment and discretion when it comes to certain people. Throughout the scriptures, we are instructed in the way of righteous judgment. 1 John 4 tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You must, in order to be a faithful Christian, you must be able to recognize a false prophet. You must understand when you're being manipulated, when you're being told lies, and you must mark those false teachers and you must avoid them. You have to exercise right judgment. You have to test the spirits. Proverbs 14, 7 says, go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. And I could go on and on and on, but we're required over and over to make sound judgments, not to avoid all judgment altogether. It is not wicked. It is not unchristlike to listen to how God defines righteousness and unrighteousness, how God defines wisdom and foolishness for us to know what pleases God and what displeases God. And for us to apply that to ourselves and to apply it to the world around us. That is not unfaithful, unchristlike. That is, that is what we're called to do to exercise proper judgment. 
Well, let's consider what he's asking us or exhorting us to do here. Let's look at the images that he uses, pigs and dogs, pearls and holy things. Dogs in the ancient world were not these cute, fluffy puppies you keep in your house. Dogs were scavengers who roamed in packs. They were dangerous and vicious and wild. Uh, it required a constant effort to keep driving wild dogs, packs of wild dogs out of the village and keep them outside. You don't want your child to be caught by a pack of feral dogs. They're vicious. Pigs also are objectionable. Pigs uh, in the Jewish world were unclean animals. And, and in the Jewish mind, pigs, swine, represented everything objectionable, everything unclean, everything undesirable and profane. Pigs were so objectionable to them that it was no burden for them not to eat them. They didn't think, oh, we're missing out on something by not, by not getting to eat Pigs. It was as undesirable and unthinkable for them to eat a pig as it would be for us to think about eating a cat or eating a, a, a gerbil or something like that. We just, we wouldn't, it just wouldn't appetize. We wouldn't think, oh, I want to eat that. It was so objectionable to them. And so in Jesus' proverb, he's giving us another over-the-top picture. As, as, we, as we studied the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps making these big, broad statements that are almost, as I've said many times, everybody had to erupt in laughter at certain points when he said things. And this is another big picture, a big over-the-top picture, because no one in their right mind would ever give pearls to a pig. Pearls, of course, are treasures. They're jewels. They're formed naturally in the shells of clams and oysters. And in order to obtain them in the ancient world, in order to get the most perfect, beautiful pearls suitable for jewelry, divers without scuba gear, by the way, would have to plunge into the water, holding their breath, find a clam or an oyster, uh, come back up to the surface, uh, break it open, dig around in there to see if there is a, a pearl, and then have to do it again and again and, and again. Uh, they were extremely precious and rare. Beautiful pearls were, um, and, and, uh, and, and very valuable. They never show up in the Old Testament. Pearls are only mentioned in the New Testament. They are jewels from the sea. Throughout the Old Testament, we have all of these jewels from the land, but jewels from the sea um, are interesting. It's a new development in the, in the New Testament because the seas are always associated with the Gentile nations in biblical symbolism. Here we have jewels from the sea. And of course, when we get to the heavenly Jerusalem, we see all the jewels of the land together with the gates of pearl incorporated into the heavenly Jerusalem. Heavenly Jerusalem is adorned with the, with the beauty and the glory of both the, the land people, the Israelites, and the sea people, the Gentiles. It all, it all comes together. Well, the point is that these, these pearls are so precious and so valuable, you do not throw them in the pig pen. You would never do that. The pig can't appreciate their value. The pig can't appraise the worth of what it's been given. It can only step on it and slobber on it and add it to the debris of the place where it wallers. Uh, that's how you say that word, right? Waller? That's, my, kid didn't, my kids didn't wallow when they were little. They wallered. And pigs waller. And he will just add it to the place 
where he wallers, but it will not adorn the pig. It will not make the pig one degree more glorious to have pearls in his sty. It may only make him angry when he thinks it's food and then it turns out to be not. And so Jesus says, you don't give pearls to pigs. They will trample on them. And Jesus also says, you don't give holy things to dogs. There's a reference in God's law about throwing uh, things to dogs. In Exodus 22, God's law says, if you happen upon an animal that's been torn by beasts, if you, if you find a carcass that's been ravaged by beasts, you haven't found lunch. You haven't found a free meal. That meat is unclean. You must not eat it. It is profane. So God's law says, throw it to the dogs. Torn things, desecrated things, roadkill goes to the wild dogs, not sacred things, not the meat, the bread that's intended for the children, the things that are prepared for the family. Those don't go to the dogs. If you take good food and you feed it to the dogs, uh, if you give them good things, the dogs aren't going to learn how to sit at the table and how to hold a fork and how to keep their elbows up and chew with their mouth closed. They're never going to learn good habits. They're still, they're still dogs. Uh, if you get too familiar with the dogs, if you keep feeding them good things, well then eventually they're going to confuse you with the food. And Jesus says, they are going to turn and tear you in pieces. So what are we being warned about here? What are the pearls? What are the holy things? Who are the pigs? Who are the dogs? And what is this threat of violence and destruction? And some commentators think that uh, this has no present day application because what Jesus is speaking into is a historical context where his mission was focused exclusively on the Jews. And so when Jesus talks about pigs and dogs, he's talking about Gentiles who won't respond to the Jewish Messiah, who can't understand what's going on with Israel. The gospel is like the treasures of the temple, that you're supposed to keep them and protect them. It's not time yet to bring them out and to share them with the Gentiles because they're going to assume that all this kingdom talk is treasonous and then they're going to come and further persecute Israel. And that must be what Jesus was, was talking about. Well, I don't think that's entirely what Jesus is getting at here. Yes, his primary mission was to Israel, but Jesus didn't withhold the truth from the Samaritan woman. He didn't, he didn't keep the truth from the Syrophoenician woman. He goes to the gatherings. He goes to a land where people keep pigs to cast demons out of the demoniac. He blessed a Roman centurion in Matthew chapter eight, and Jesus praised his faith. So Jesus's own actions are not consistent with an interpretation that says, don't let any of this leak out to the Gentiles just yet, because Jesus didn't do that himself. A variation of this interpretation is that what Jesus meant is that the preaching of the gospel is only for the elect, those who've been chosen by God, those who've been set apart for glory uh, from uh, eternity before the world began. The gospel's only for them, and to preach the gospel to the non-elect, well, that's worse than a waste of time. It's treating a holy thing with contempt. Well, if that's the meaning, how am I, how am I know, how, gonna know how to apply it? I don't have an x-ray to tell whether you're elect, whether you are potentially regenerate or not. Furthermore, 
the Spirit fills and empowers his church to preach to all the nations. He uses the preaching of the gospel to call his people. So, so that can't be it. That's, that doesn't seem to be what he's talking about. Some early church fathers uh, interpreted this to be instruction on the Lord's Supper. And they used it to argue that unbelievers shouldn't come to the Lord's table. They should be prevented uh, and, and because you don't throw pearls to swine. Well, they're correct in their conclusion that we don't invite unbelievers to the Lord's table, but they, but they get there the wrong way. They, that's not how you get there. Um, the Lord Jesus hasn't instituted the supper yet, so he's not talking about that. Um, it's like when your kid does a math problem and they get all of this wrong and somehow they come out with the right answer. And how did you get there? Because all of this is wrong and yet you got the right answer. Well, they got the right answer, but that's not how you, that's not how you get there. So uh, what, what, is, uh, what is an understanding? How do, we, how do we rightly understand what Jesus means? Well, we, we do it by observing what Jesus does in the Gospels. Are there any examples of Jesus putting this teaching into practice? Does Jesus ever teach openly to one group and then respond to a different group in a more reserved or restrained manner? Does Jesus speak to some and refuse to speak to others? Well, the answer is yes. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly takes different approaches with different people, depending on the circumstances and their attitudes and their receptivity. You might say that Jesus never deals with two people in precisely the same way. Any two people, he might and, and often does deal with them differently. For example, every time that Jesus heals a blind man, he uses a different order of operations. There's one blind man where Jesus says simply, receive your sight, and the man can see. There's another blind man who is healed when Jesus makes mud with his saliva, he puts it on the man's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he can see. One blind man is healed in two stages. Jesus puts saliva on his eyes, no mud, no dirt, he lays his hands on him and he says, do you see anything? And the man says, I can see men like trees walking. Jesus lays his hand on him again and then his sight is completely healed. Um, he can see clearly. And we could study all these events separately and see what, um, maybe learn some things about uh, the ministry of Jesus and his healing work. But at root, every one of these men were a unique creation of God they each had different doubts and fears and sins and objections. They were at different places in their walk and in their faith in God. Jesus does not have a one-size-fits-all blind healing ministry. He deals with everyone where they are in a different way. He discriminates between them and meets their needs. Likewise, Jesus treats Nathaniel's doubts differently from Thomas's doubts who is different from Nicodemus, who is different from the woman at the well. He has a different manner and a different language when he's confronting the Pharisees and when he's speaking to the common people like the woman caught in adultery. The entire point of Jesus using parables in his teaching was to speak in a coded, symbolic way for his own people to be able to understand while at once confusing the Pharisees who are just waiting for him to say something so that they can catch him and, and get a gotcha statement that they can use against him. And, and Jesus, of course, did this brilliantly. 
He would often say, he who has ears, let him hear, because his people could hear and understand what he was saying while he was just confusing those who were outside. Not everybody in his audience was going to understand, and he wanted it that way. Every time Jesus says, it is not my time yet, he's withholding and reserving things that are going to be abused by wicked men. This all comes to a point in his trial before his crucifixion. He responds to Pilate differently from the way he responds to Herod. Jesus answers Pilate, the, the one authority in the whole narrative who seems to be closer to the kingdom than anybody else, whose Pilate's heart seems to be malleable. He's, he's at least sympathetic at some level to Jesus. And yet Pilate's a Gentile. We might assume in the story that, well, if there's any pig, if there's any dog in the story, it's got to be Pilate. Herod, on the other hand, the king of Judea, the king of his people, Herod, is just looking for miracles. He's just looking for parlor tricks, entertainment. And Jesus answers him not a word. Jesus does not give his pearls to that swine. With the Jewish court, Jesus is silent until the very end. And then Jesus affirms that he is Christ, the son of God. Jesus never changes his message. Jesus never massages the truth. He doesn't back off the hard realities or sand down the hard corners, the sharp corners. But depending on the context and depending on the people and their attitudes and their behavior, Jesus never responds to any two people exactly the same way. And the church picks up on this in Acts. There are places where the missionaries go in Acts where they're well-received. People give them lodging and food and they stay for many months. They have great success, bear much fruit. They preach and they teach. There are other places they go where they run into strong opposition from the pagans, where they come across jealous, unrepentant Jews in the synagogues. And what do they do? They turn from those places, they leave town, they shake the dust off their clothing, and they say, your blood be on your own heads. In the epistles, Paul gives warnings and he gives instruction about how to deal with contentious, reviling men. He says, deal with them swiftly and decisively. One or two corrections, that's all they get. And then reject them, put them away. In all of these instances, we see in practice what Jesus is dealing with and what he's talking about here when he says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. The dogs and the swine that Jesus speaks about here are the blasphemers, the high-handed, stiff-necked, unrepentant, the open despisers of the Lord Jesus, the violent opponents of the advance of the gospel. That's who the pigs and dogs are. The pearls, the holy things, are the words that he's teaching here, the Sermon on the Mount, the truths of the gospel. Those are the pearls. And the reality of what he's teaching here, what he's saying is that there are people who are incapable of appreciating the gospel. They will treat the gospel like pigs treat pearls. They hate the Lord Jesus. And if you keep preaching to them, if you keep talking to them, they will trample on you and they will tear you apart. So when you've spoken the truth, and then you wisely discern they are not receptive. You are not required to keep saying the same things. You move on and you shake the dust off of your feet. 
There are other places to go. There are other people who are here. And you are robbing those other people if you waste your time throwing your pearls at pigs. Furthermore, if you keep pressing, you know that because of their nature, they're going to try to destroy you. There is, a, there is a time and a place for martyrdom. There is. There is a time where you say, you know what? This is the inevitable outcome. Uh, faithfulness, fidelity to the Lord Jesus requires that I stand my ground and take whatever is coming to me. The Lord Jesus did that himself. Jesus was the holy one who was torn in pieces by dogs. Jesus says, don't give what's holy to the dogs. Jesus was given to the dogs. He was turned over to the dogs and he was torn in pieces. There is a time for martyrdom, but just know that's the outcome. Don't be surprised. That is what is going to happen. This is a statement of what is going to happen inevitably if you stand your ground against these dogs and pigs. There are people who will go violent. This doesn't mean that you shrink back and you never do anything good for anyone. That doesn't mean you are never kind. This doesn't mean you're never loving to unbelievers. We are going to continue to do loving and kind things all the time that are going to be underappreciated, that are going to be uh, un, uh, uh, not received with grateful hearts. And also what Jesus is saying here, this does not mean, I've got to clarify this, Jesus does not mean that we are quick to identify someone as a dog or a, or a pig. We don't identify everyone this way. Uh, remember the Syrophoenician woman who kind of uh, verbally sparred with Jesus a little bit. I think he even teased her about being a dog. And she's not a dog, she's a lamb. There are people who, over time, you, you're able to um, win them by patience and gentleness. Some people take a lot of time and they're not instantly hateful or or violent to the, to, the, to the preaching of the gospel. So uh, if, if you think, well, I've got this person I've been talking to for a long time, and every once in a while I see this glimmer of hope, and they might be coming around, and then they have a setback, but then they come back around. Are they a pig? Are they a dog? Do I turn from them? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. But there is a kind of person there is a twisted demonic soul that we ought to be able to identify who is going to go nuclear if you keep pressing. And Jesus warns, persist in preaching the truth to pigs and you are going to be in danger. Now, when, when we see Jesus and the apostles make these judgments about who to go to and who to leave behind, overwhelmingly in the scriptures, it's not the Gentiles who are the dogs and the pigs. Everywhere they go, the Gentiles, their ears are open. It's Israel who are acting like the pigs. You would assume that it would be the other way around, but there's this inversion here. Piggish Israel, compromised with Rome, uh, they think they're the keeper of the pearls. They think that they're the keeper of the holy things, but they're wallowing in mud and slop. They trample the holy things in every chance they get. Stephen, James, they tear the holy ones apart. So how do we rightly apply this uh, in our lives and in our place in history? By the way, I realize I'm going kind of long today, but I haven't been in this pulpit in about three weeks. So I've, I've got a lot stored up. Um, and so I'm only doing one verse today, and that's my gift to you. I'm not taking the whole section, just one verse. So how do, how do we rightly apply this in our lives, in our place in history? One simple lesson easy takeaway from this saying of Jesus is that we do not commit precious things to people who cannot appreciate their value, who will warp 
and distort the thing that you give them. Uh, it will only provoke them to abuse those things and respond in destructive ways. We don't give our children to wicked men to train and educate. We, we don't give up these precious resources to people who don't love our Savior. We don't turn them over. We don't give our pearls to swine. We don't give them our allegiance. We don't give them our unquestioning, undying support. We are extremely reserved with who and what we endorse and what we give our time to and, 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 and what we give our resources to. We must have our antennas up for propaganda from every corner that would consume your thoughts and consume your heart and, and cover you up with this, um, with, with this uh, consumption of, a, of, of ideas that are not fruitful and not productive. There are manipulators who want your time, who want your emotions, who want your outrage, who want your money. Uh, and, and we have our, our antennas up for conspiracy theories from left and right. To say, you know what, this will waste my time and will waste my life. And in the end, what's it worth? Don't give your pearls of precious time over to manipulators and conspiracy theorists. God has given you a finite amount of time in your life. Don't throw it away. Wicked men commandeer good things only to pervert them. Only, for example, <laughs> um, we, we, we have to be careful with how we use words now because wicked men have taken these good things and they've redefined them and they've perverted them. So words like justice, that's a Bible word. God is just. In, in uh, societies that follow God's law, there is real justice. But now every time we use the word justice, we have to define exactly what it is we're talking about. It's not altogether a bad thing, but there's not this common ground understanding of what justice is because that's what they do. They take good things and they twist it. So we don't concede any ground to them. Nothing's neutral. Don't commit precious things to wicked men. Another takeaway is that this is a call for faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus to exercise proper discrimination, proper judgment all the time. Not, I'm going to use a different word, not prejudice, not vain prejudgment, out of ignorance based on superficialities. A good example of that is when Samuel saw all the sons of Jesse lined up and he thought that the oldest and the tallest must surely be the next king of Israel. And that was, that was wrong. Um, there are other metrics that we use to distinguish between different types of people. Uh, they've been taught what are their own prejudices, how receptive they are to the truth. That determines what approach that we take with them. Uh, in Thessalonians, Paul says, warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. We're not obligated to treat everyone in every situation exactly the same because no one is the same. No situation is exactly the same. Some men are more wicked than others. Some men are more ignorant than others. Some sins are more destructive. Some ideas are more dangerous. Some cultures are more debased and idolatrous and corrupt than others. We live in a time in history where everything gets flattened out and everybody is treated the same and you assume that everybody's just coming from the same place. And that's not true. 
Exercising proper discrimination means that we can identify faithful men and unfaithful men, obedient cultures and societies and disobedient cultures and societies, and to say with boldness and confidence, this pleases Christ, and that people, that culture is going to be judged unless there is major repentance and revival. We don't pietistically retreat by, behind that old platitude, well, I'm a sinner, who am I to judge? We all sin, and their sin isn't any worse than mine, so I can't correct or say anything about that. Well, yeah, I'm a sinner, of course. I'm a sinner who confesses his sin. I'm a sinner who hates his sin, and I want to please Christ, and I want to do what he says, and on that basis, I'm telling you, for example, that all sexual perversion is soul-destroying, culture-rotting, image of God defacing wickedness, and if you continue in it, you are going to die and go to hell. You will never be blessed. You will never be happy. And if we let you continue in it, you're going to take our whole culture with you. And we don't want that. So repent. See, when we make these distinctions, what ultimately makes the difference what separates a pig from a sheep is not the color of his skin or his nationality, but his obedience and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the difference. His receptivity to the gospel, his citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, that's what makes him a brother and not a pig and not a dog. And, and, and even though we're tempted to draw all kinds of lines and all kinds of other superficial places, the bottom line is that rotten, bankrupt cultures are rotten and bankrupt because they reject the Lord Jesus. Jesus gives us the authority and the call to make these kinds of judgments. In practice, this is where Jesus and the church in the scripture set the boundary line between belief and unbelief. And these lines fell in, in surprising places to the first century Jew. They thought, they thought they were on the inside, racially, nationally, they had the right family, but they found themselves on the outside. Why? Well, because of their hostility to the gospel and their hostility to King Jesus. And Gentiles from all over the ancient world, from Ethiopia to Rome, who heard the gospel and who embraced the Lord Jesus were on the inside. Uh, CJ has been very helpfully taken us through the book of Jonah, and perhaps Jonah thought this way. When he was called to, to go to Nineveh, he thought he was keeping this principle about not casting your pearls before swine, perhaps. He's, these words of God are holy things. I don't want to scatter pearls before pigs. But in fact, God was at work in Nineveh to stir their hearts to repentance. And it turns out the Ninevites were the sheep and Jonah was the one acting like a pig. This wise discrimination that Jesus is encouraging and commanding will also guide us in the content of our communication with the people that we're hoping to win. For example, if you're talking to an unbeliever about his need to confess his sins and trust the Lord Jesus, he's often going to attempt to pull you off course. He'll want to talk about the Crusades. He'll want to talk about the Spanish Inquisition. He'll want to talk about miracles. And you may be intimidated by that. You may think, you know what? I'm not really a good debater. And... I don't have a lot of quick, witty responses to objections like that, so maybe I should just not try. But the truth is that when you hear those objections, they are really not much more than a lot of bluster and distraction. 
Um, you can say, you know what, I, I hear you. Let's get to those topics. Let's study. Maybe we'll study. We'll read a book on the Crusades. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about miracles sometime. But the bottom line today is, right now, the important thing that you understand, friend, is you are a sinner with an expiration date. You have an appointment to appear at the judgment seat of your creator. And you have no way of redeeming yourself. You have no way of solving the problem of the grave or your own sin. All of your needs, however, are met in one man, Jesus. Let me tell you how my relationship and fellowship with him has changed my life and my hope of eternity. Bring it back to that. You see, there's not a lot of productivity in debating election with a non-believer. Don't debate eschatology with an unbeliever, with a lost man. Don't feel like you need to answer those questions. Remember how the woman at the well kept trying to pull Jesus off to sideline issues? Well, uh, my people worship over here and my people worship this way. And there are all these differences between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus kept pulling her right back and saying, that's not the point. That's not the issue. You are a sinner. You need forgiveness. And I am your savior. He kept bringing it back to that. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom is for the mature man. The meat is for those who can digest it. The milk is for babies. Babies need milk. And it's not an insult to babies to drink milk, but they need it. Wisdom is for those who are mature. And, he, and Paul continues. He says, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. He who is spiritual judges all things. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. You see, Paul doesn't say, don't ever judge anything ever. Paul says the opposite. He says, for the man who is spiritual, for the man who has the mind of Christ, he judges all things. There, there must be a constant discernment and, and judging going on all the time about what to say and who to say it to and, and when. Oh, one last point, I promise, about how Jesus describes the response of the wicked when he talks about how they will turn and tear you in pieces, it's commonly suggested that what the rebellious need and what the wicked need and what the sexually perverse need, what they need from the church is this. They need more compassion. They need more tolerance. Now, absolutely, we lead with kindness. We lead with compassion. We wouldn't correct or admonish if we weren't doing it out of love. But that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about complete affirmation. And it's assumed that if we gave them that, then we would be more Christ-like and they would be more open to the gospel. How many people do you know who have repented of their sin and rejected an ungodly lifestyle when all the Christians around them were affirming them and tolerating their ungodliness and never confronted their foolishness when all of the Christians around them participated in their delusions? How many, how many people have you ever known who have turned to Jesus because everybody just supported them in their wickedness? That's not what happens. That's not what Jesus says. He says, you give them pearls of compassion, and what does it do? It inflames their rebellion and their hatred and their sin. 
It justifies them. Jesus says they will trample your efforts under their feet and they will turn and tear you in pieces. They grow hateful and violent. That is the default setting for those who despise the Lord Jesus. Because I was traveling, I wasn't here to celebrate with you uh, on the reversal of Roe v. Wade, which we prayed for for so long. We've entered God's sanctuary and we've cried out to him Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We've prayed out at Jones Franklin Road and up on Lake Boone Trail and we've sang psalms across from the governor's mansion. We've prayed and we've sang psalms and we've asked God to change this. And I don't know about you, but I was starting to think that this wasn't going to happen in my lifetime. I thought that maybe in my grandchildren's lifetime, maybe something would turn. But the Lord surprisingly was merciful and gracious far beyond what we deserve. He's been unbelievably patient with our culture. It makes me think that maybe he's not finished with us yet. Maybe after all, there's room for revival and reformation and repentance. But after all of this, you see how the pigs and the dogs respond to this incredible providence of God. How do they respond? Threats, violence, anger, there's no more pretense. The blasphemy and the truth of their motivations are right out in the open now. And Jesus tells us here, do not be naive about who or what you are dealing with. Idols do not go away quietly. We are dealing with people in this situation who believe that there is no greater human freedom than the freedom to slaughter children. No greater human right than the freedom to slaughter children. These are people who think we cannot have a functional, flourishing society apart from the ability to legally kill infants. There are no other solutions to the problems of society but that. That's the one. That's what they think. That's where we are. And if that's their compassion for infants, what do they think about you? What do they think about the church? So then, do not be careless or frivolous or naive with your actions or your words. Be wise, be circumspect, be above reproach. This was an enormous victory, but this is just getting started. There's a lot of work left to do. Don't be a novice. We must all grow up in the mind of Christ and be able to exercise careful discrimination and judgment, mature, holy discretion. And so we will, if we walk around the, with these things in our head and our heart, and we pray that the Holy Spirit continues to make proper application in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to build us up in every dimension to indeed give us patience and compassion and kindness toward all men, and to be bold in our witness of the truth, and to be able to make clear distinctions between those who are only going to be violent and those who are receptive. Father, we ask you to strengthen us by your Holy Spirit and protect us and protect our children in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.